Well, when you look at your bulletin on the front, or excuse me, not on the front, in the sermon it says, join the mundane Ecclesiastes. Um, my original sermon was going to be something similar to looking at and finding the spiritual discipline of contentment. Um, as Christians, learning to be content in what we have and don't have, I think is actually a spiritual discipline, something we need to practice and embrace. But then as I began working through that, I thought, well, I want to do something more closely related to Thanksgiving and looking at the joy and, and life and how we constantly do the same things. Um, I'm sure this doesn't happen in your house, but in my house, a dish gets washed, it gets put up, it gets pulled down, it gets used, it gets washed, it gets put up, it gets pulled down, right? So this joy in the cyclical nature of being a human of life lived. And then I realized Colin wanted to do Advent-themed things, and I thought, you know, I should probably do something Advent-themed to help and to encourage the vision that Colin has. And so we're not going to do Joy in the Mundane Ecclesiastes. We're going to be talking about hope this morning. And hope particularly in Christ for our lives today. And his appointed time and when he came. And so what I mean by that is simply this. We're going to find hope in the, in the fact that Christ came when he did. That Christ did not come sooner he did not come later, but he came at the time of which the story of Christmas takes place. Because I don't know about you, but I've, I ever have thought through the question of, why didn't Jesus come in 2019? Could Jesus, the first time, come in 2019? Could he have come in the year 9,102? What year could Jesus have come in? Was it open for debate? Was it something that God kind of threw a dart at the calendar of history and said, this is a good time? It works? I think as we look at this, one of the things that we need to bring out of it, and the reason that we're to take encouragement of when Jesus came, is it tells us the great story of hope for our lives. We often and rightly do call Christmas a story. It's a story of when our hope begins. It's a story of Jesus coming into the world. And so when we look at this story, it should give us hope in the fact that our story, our lives are part of that great event. And that God in eternity past, before anything came into existence or was, had determined how this story would play out. God knew when he was going to send Jesus. And in fact, he created all of history to intersect beautifully at that moment. And so that's the point I want you to take from this sermon this morning, is this notion of the fact that we are to take hope from God telling the Christmas story exactly as it is. That God was not simply hodgepodging things together, and he wasn't ram rummaging through the bins of time trying to find a good place for Jesus to land. That everything was intentionally set up for Jesus to come at that time for our salvation. And so I want us to look at our overall verse. We're going to do a couple of verses today in terms of flipping through our Bibles. So I'm going to reading out of the NSAB. Um, if you have a different translation, yours might read a little bit different. But if you'll turn with me, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We're going to read just a little bit to give the context. So 
Um, we don't get lost on a different theological point, but we'll focus on our understanding of Christ's coming. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. First of all then, I urge the entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. For kings and all who are in authority, so that, they may, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And so the beginning part of Timothy, right, verses 1 through 2, we see Paul particularly saying that we should pray for our elected leaders. We should pray for those who rule over us, whether good or evil. Right? They have been appointed. And so we're to pray for them. And then he goes on to the simple th- uh, understanding that, right, that we, why? That we may lead a godly and tranquil life. It blows me away every time I've read that verse, and I've read this verse many times, that God takes joy in us having a simple life. Right? God doesn't expect big and glamorous things out of you. And I think that's wonderful because I think so often I feel like a small ant, right, in the ant colony. Ants are running over me to get their job done. I'm running over other, right? It's, it's chaos when you look at a huge ant wall, right? And you try to follow one ant from one end to the other. Odds are you're probably going to lose them somewhere along the way. But yet God looks down at our lives. He looks at what we're doing here in Roswell and he delights in our lives if we're living them in godliness and dignity. That's, that's wonderful to know. And so as we look through that, we see that he's pointing to then what's coming next. This is good acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men. Right? Well, what's it mean by all men here? Just to take a little detour. Right? It's not saying all men in terms of everyone ever created. It's referring to what? The men who lead quiet lives in verse 2 and in verse 1, right? Those who are kings, rulers of authority. God is not in the business of selecting VIPs. Right? Um, our president, our leaders, um, NFL talents are not banging down my door to come get my opinion. I am not impressive. Thankfully, God's not looking for impressiveness in the terms of what men look for. And so God desires all men of different statues and different situations and economic um, disparities to come to the truth. Right? God saves all, rich, poor, wise, and dumb. But look at five with me. For there is one God... And one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One of the key tenets of the Christian faith is God came in flesh. The Son came and dwelt among us, as we're going to see in, first, in the first chapter of John. Right? He is the perfect mediator because he is God. He understands holiness. He understands absoluteness. But as a fully human, he understands what it is to be the creature. And so he's able to mediate between God and men and reconcile them through his death. Who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. This is our overarching 
verse for what we're looking at today. The testimony of Jesus' life, his death, burial, resurrection, given at the proper time. This was the time of chosen. It was the time that God looked through and said, this is actually when I'm going to put my stamp on the earth in the form of Jesus. This is when he's going to come. I'm setting up all of the time beforehand to arrive at this moment. And I'm going to have all of history after changed because of this moment. God splits history with Jesus coming in at the proper time. And we see Paul pointing this out, right? For this I was appointed, what? For the testimony, give the proper time, as apostle, a teacher. Right? Therefore I want men in every place to pray without wrath and dissension. Because of the proper time, because Christ coming in the flesh when he did, forever our life is changed. Paul's life is forever changed. And those who follow after Paul, as stated in verse 8, their life is forever changed. And so this morning, I want, to, I want us to think about that. It's not just simply a matter of potato, potato, right? This is the exact moment God crafted throughout human history. His fingers are in the pudding, so to speak, of the history of humanity. God is not taking an off-hand approach. He has not just spun the world into its orbit and said, okay, have at it. Right? His hands are in Vested. He is invested in time, in space, in our lives from beginning to end, and in the insertion of Jesus into the proper time. And so we understand there's some logistical reasons behind this, right? We understand that he had to come when there was a temple system, right? In, in Jerusalem, there had to be a temple system so that the sacrifices were still going on that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice as we read in Hebrews, right? The blood, the blood of bulls and calves could never take away the sins of the people, right? But only the blood of Jesus Christ. He had to come when there was a Roman rule and a crucifixion system, a system that put people to death in such a way that it would fulfill the countless prophecies as listed in the Old Testament, right? The Jewish nation had still not been scattered as it happens after 70 AD when the Romans come in and completely tear down the temple and the Jews have to leave Jerusalem and they don't come back to be a recognized state till millennia later. Right? There's lots of other reasons we could dive into going back from prophecy to the historical events, the cultural events of why that was the best time for Jesus to come. But I want us to, f- to focus on that notion that Jesus is telling a great story. And so we can look at all those other things. And I'm pretty confident that, that um, Colin is going to look at some of the Old Testament prophecies. He's going to look at and address some of those things around Christmas. But I want us to think of the great story that Christ is telling in his coming. And so read with me. Let's go to the beginning of that story. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. In the Gospel of John, we see the pre-story. We see the pre-story of Christ coming before he's born in a manger to Mary. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In the beginning, right, even that terminology is even um, limited in a sense because we're limited humans, right? God has to speak to us in language, and our understanding of language is limited. In the beginning was the Word, right? Before the beginning of all time existing, before time, Christ has existed. The Word has existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? We get the picture of the triune nature of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. God loves to tell stories, right? I think that's the, the wonderful thing that sometimes as Christians we, we don't fully grasp, is God is a masterful storyteller. He loves good stories. Think about that. Jesus has created all things. All beings came through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So here's Jesus creating with Father, right? Genesis, working through animals, working through planets, the stars, solar systems, nebulas, right? All of these things he is creating. And then what is he going to do with his own creation, his own story that he started and told? He's then going to enter into that own story himself. He's going to become part of the story, not from just the creator standpoint, but one of its key and pivotal characters of all time. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus was going to insert himself into the story to save the broken people that he created in the beginning. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness did not comprehend it. It's one of the wonderful things of Christmas story is there's darkness in the story, right? You think about Herod. You think about all the things that happened right after. You think of the Old Testament prophecies waiting to be fulfilled in Jesus. And then Jesus comes and the angels proclaim, right, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Right? The story is beginning with Jesus the story that he has written for us. And so we see that this story is important because it's a story that's not just simply rooted in one section of a place and time. It's throughout all of eternity. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. We're going to read Mary's song. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Follow along as I read this. Now at this time, Mary rose and went in a hurry to the hill country to the city of Judah. 
and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment in what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those whom, who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And he has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servants, in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoken to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Sometimes it's hard for us to see that black and white and not see that wonderful story that's being told there, right? I mean, here's, here is Elizabeth. The baby leaps in her. She's filled with the Spirit. Right? This is a high point of ecstasy, of excitement, of passion in the grand story that God's telling us. But notice Mary's response. Right? Her response is interesting because she kind of is not, in a sense, all over the place, but she's all over the place in terms of history. Right? She talks about herself, right? that instant moment, her in the moment, the now, the present. But then what does she look to? For generations to come will be blessed. Right? She looks into the future, prophetically speaking, of what Christ is to do. Right? Generation after generation towards those who fear him will be blessed because of Jesus. The story will continue. The story will only get better as the time goes on. Right? The birth of Christ is not the climax of history. It's the beginning of the climax of the come, which is eternity with God forever. He's done mighty deeds. He scattered those who were proud, right? He's brought down rulers. He has filled the hungry with good things. He's sent away the rich empty-handed. Christ has been telling stories throughout all of history. And so often we get bottled down in the minutia of those stories because we have a limited view. We're like the caterpillars that sit on a branch, and we're sitting there and we look over and there's another caterpillar and he's in a cocoon. And we just look at the cocoon and we say, how could God do that? How could he let Carl become goo in that cocoon? That's just not okay. Carl was a happy caterpillar. Now look at him. Right? Because we so often lose sight of what? What's Carl going to become? He's going to become a butterfly, right? He's going to be better than he was. Caterpillars are pretty amazing, but then you see what a butterfly is and, and you're blown away at the intricacy, the delicacy, the beauty and complexity within it. And so often in our lives, we lose sight of that grand story. We look at the little things that are going wrong for us. We think, where is God? Right? The rich are ruling over us. I'm poor. I've been hungry. But Mary points us out, right? No, these things are temporary, Right? Christ has come. The hungry will be filled. Those who are humble will be exalted. 
the rich, in terms of the lustfulness, will be sent away empty-handed. He has given help to his Israel, his servants, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Abraham is thousands and thousands of years removed, right? The, the general rule of thumb is Abraham's 8,000 years before Christ. 8,000 years Mary's referring back to, right? She refers forward generations, generations, but she also reaches back into time to point to the radicalness of Christ coming into this world. That the past will be redeemed as the future will be glorified through Jesus. That's a wonderful story. That's what Christmas is about. It's the story of God redeeming the past and glorifying the future for us. And so, so often we need to remind ourselves that this story has influence on our story, right? So we try to teach our children. We try to have these Advent events in our church to remind us of the story, the greatness of Christmas. But if we're not contextualizing it to our lives, I think sometimes that meaning is lost. Look with me into Acts chapter 17. We're going to read Paul's response to the men on Mars Hill. Acts chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 22 and read through 31. So Paul stood in the midst of the Arapagaeus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with inscription to an unknown God. Therefore you worship in ignorance what I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man of every nation kind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. They would seek God, and perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that divine natures like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is... Paul pointing to the multiple intertwinings of our lives with Christ's life. Your life is intertwined with Christ. Right? When we celebrate Christmas, do you stop and think about that? Your life is explicitly connected to Christ's life. Just as my life is connected to my children, right? your life will always be connected to Christ. Whether you believe or you don't believe, your life is connected to Christ. Look at with me in verse 26. And he has made one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Right? Christ had you born. Have you ever thought to yourself, 
man, I wish I was born a decade sooner or I was born in the wrong century, right? We have this nostalgia for when we wish we could have lived. But what Paul's point here is that Christ has put you in this exact time and place for a reason. It's not simply by accident and genealogy that you ended up who you were. You are appointed here at this time. Not only that, but your boundaries have been appointed. This always amazes me in the fact that there's, I can't live everywhere I think I can. Right? God has actually determined my boundaries. And there's always a part of me that in my fantasy that thinks, man, wouldn't it just be great to pick up and move to China or move somewhere just completely different, remote, right? Somewhere off the map, so to speak, in terms of familiarity. But Christ has determined what my days are going to look like. For some of you, if I'd asked you 10, 20 years ago, do you think you're going to live in Roswell, New Mexico? You might have said, where? <laughs> Never, right? I, I would rather die before then. But yet here you are this morning. Here I am. God has determined your boundaries. He's determined your appointed times, the seasons in your life, right? Ecclesiastes says there's a time for planting, a time for harvesting. God has determined seasons in your life. There are things you will go through. There are cycles of your life that he has determined. He is in the midst of your life. Right, look at 28. For in him, Christ, we live and move and exist. Christ is actively involved in our lives. The Christmas story is actively involved in your life. He entered into the world to be a part of our lives. Right? The Christmas story directly affects you. You're directly affected by Christ being involved in your life and your limitations of where you can live, the boundaries, and the appointments of your life. Because look at 31. Because he's fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness. There's a day coming. It's fixed already. Right? Jesus and God aren't going, I don't know what's going to come. We're just waiting for like a certain percentage to hit. And then we're going to, no, Jesus has a certain day. He knows when that day is coming. And he knows what to do on that day. Right? He's going to judge the world in righteousness. It's coming for all humanity. Time has been woven together. And yet, within that magical weaving of time, you are given free actions, which you do. You're living your life. You made the conscious choice to move to Roswell. You made the conscious choice to come here this morning. But yet God is in the midst of that story. He's weaving that story with the Christmas story into the great story ever. There's a, a book called Notes from a Tilty World by N.D. Wilson. And in this book, he talks about one of the simple things that, is, that as Christians we overlook. And that is finding majesty, excuse me, majesty, that's not a word, majesty in this world. Finding wonder and amazement in what God is doing in our lives. So often we look at our lives and we have a negative attitude. <sighs> another week, another dollar, another Monday, right? That's, that's not what we're called to be as believers. We have this beautiful radical storyteller called Christ who's telling a story around us. Now, often we, we don't like the way God tells a story, right? We'd like it to be in our words, our understanding. So I'm going to read a section from his book that talks about the story of your life and its relation to Christ. There are Christians in the world who bemoan the absence of God's speech, 
who cry out for personal communication with God himself. They want cues for their lines. They want explanations and specific directions from the artist. As God, as far as they can tell, is ignoring them. They feel neglected because they weren't cast as Moses or Elijah or Enoch or Gideon. Tell me what you want me to do, God. Speak to me in English, please. And tell me if I should take this job in Des Moines or stay closer to my mother. Then, because their part in the story does not include cosmic overvoices in English, they enter an, ex- an external crisis. They begin to doubt. What kind of story do you think this is? I have no problems with your decision that of Des Moines, the Des Moines dilemma. The world spins on through space, bold by its maker. The sun burns on, hot with his words. And yet he still crafts every snowflake without digital shortcuts. He knows that you want to move to Des Moines, and yet you feel guilty. He wrote the story. He crafted your character. He gave you life and a plot of your own. Every simple character story, the kind with no special effects, put together by one lonely producer and staring unbeautiful people, even those who are not beneath him. Infinite reaches all the way up to the transcendent epics of the stars and all the way down to the anthill where one loyal worker spends his life toiling. From the first day after the larval stage to its noble end, killed by a ladybug. The ant story may be more dramatic than yours, but it's not bigger. And don't worry, someday you'll play for your keeps too. Someday, even in slow suburban stories, there will be a death scene. But why would any Christian claim that God has stopped talking? Did he speak the world into existence? Does matter exist apart from him? Is he still here? Are you still here? Then he is still speaking. The Christmas story is God speaking to us. So often in our lives, we get upset. Why am I a bigger character? Why am I not the, Mo- the Moses? Why am I not someone who's more impressive, more sought out after? Why am I have to make a simple decision between staying close to my mother or moving somewhere else? But God is in the midst of that story. The Christmas story is in the midst of it. Christ has called us to him, and he is working through your lives to tell his story of redemption, of hope. That's tremendous to think about, that God takes joy in telling his story through us. This morning, as we close, I would like to read Romans 8 to us. And as we read Romans 8, I want you to be thinking about the fact of your life intertwined with the Christian Christmas story. The fact that God is telling a story through Christmas, that he's telling a story through your lives. And those two are forever connected. Forever connected in Eternal judgment for rejection of his son or eternal glory and relationship with his son forevermore. We're going to read Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 18 and we'll read to the end and we'll pray. Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God.
For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have seen, been saved, but hope what is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn above many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word and for powerful verses like those we just read. We're thankful that Christ is in the midst of our lives. That his story of coming to be the God-man is directly connected to my life in 2019. That we are the beneficiaries of his coming. We're so humbly grateful, God, that you take all things and you work them for our good. We're thankful for the fact that nakedness and strife and death and tragedies and calamities will not separate us from you. That your love covers our sins. So Father, I pray that as we come into December, that we would be convicted of the story. That we'd be convicted of the story that you're telling our lives, God. That we would be excited to know that you are invested in us. That you died for us. And you call us sons and daughters forever.
Father, we thank you for what you're doing in this church. We do pray that you would continue to help us to grow deeper in relationship with you and with one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.